And uh, Pastor Tom, he's out of town, and so we have the opportunity. Uh, Dwayne got to preach last week, and I get the opportunity to preach this week. And I'm super excited. We're going to be looking at Psalm 111. That is the psalm that was read this morning. We're going to be just digging through this and see what the Lord has for us. So I'm going to go ahead and pray. Then we're going to go a little bit over some overview and then dig right in. So please join me in prayer. Jesus, we are we're thankful. We're thankful for the words that you have for us today in this psalm. We are just grateful for who you are and what you've done. God, I pray that the message of redemption, the message of fear, the message of who you are, Jesus, will really be proclaimed today. I pray that you'll soften all of our hearts, give us wisdom to understand your words. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So Psalm 111, good news, 10 verses. 10 verses, that's it. But hold on, it might might not, that doesn't mean it's short. So the first eight verses, they are all about who God is and all of the ways that he has provided for us. So in the context, we're looking at the Israelite people here. This is pre-Jesus, and it's looking at how God has delivered them throughout the years. So that's kind of the first eight verses. In verse nine, we're going to see the ultimate provision of God, and that is his redemption. So we're going to look at what it meant for those people in that time to be redeemed, Then we're going to look at what it means for our redemption and what it means for us to be redeemed. And finally, in verse 10, we're going to look at our response to that. And that's one of, probably one of the verses maybe some of you have memorized, the verse about the fear of the Lord being the beginning of all wisdom. And we're going to, we're going to try to understand what that actually means. Because I think if we were to go across this room today and say, hey, what does the fear of the Lord mean? We'd probably have a lot of different answers. And that's okay, but hopefully today we can all kind of land in a central place and get a better grasp on what it means to truly fear the Lord. So that's where we're headed today. So let's go ahead. And if you have your Bible, we're going to turn to Psalm 111. If not, we have it up here on the screen. So we're just going to go through these first eight verses, kind of unpacking them, and then we'll dig into application later on. Psalm 111, the first three words, praise the Lord. We just got done singing that, by the way. Praise the Lord. I love it. That is the context. That is the tone of what this psalm is all about. When Tom asked me, he said, hey, I'd like for you to preach through a psalm. You know, I was kind of looking through and I'm like, man, I want something encouraging. I want something positive. I want something uplifting. I want something not super deep in theology. And I found this psalm and the first three words were praise the Lord. I'm like, yeah, I think this might be a good place to start. So then I started reading through and I'm like, this is where I want us to be. So this sets the tone of everything we're talking about. This is a psalm of praise. We don't know who wrote this psalm, so we're going to call them the psalmist because they wrote the psalm. But it's not just an individual praise. After the psalmist says, praise the Lord, he says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. So that's his heart. He is praising the Lord in his heart. But then the very next line, it says, in the company of the upright, in the congregation. So what this is telling us is praising the Lord. Yes, it's something that we want to do. It's something that we do individually. We want to worship Jesus. But also, what we're doing today, corporate worship, that is essential. The psalmist is saying right here, in the congregation, to praise the Lord in the congregation. So that's why we're here today. And that's encouraging. I love that. So I want to encourage you that we've talked, I know before we've talked about like that Lone Ranger Christian. Like there's no Lone Ranger Christian. Yes, we worship God in our own hearts, but we also want to come together as a congregation and worship him and praise his name all together. So that is what we're here for today. That's what the psalmist is talking about. 
In verse 2, we start to talk about observation of God's work. So let's read verse 2 through 4. It says, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. I love this. The psalmist is taking a step back. Just taking a step back to remember all that God has done for his people. And we're going to actually see what that means in these next few verses. But if you look, he says he's full of splendor and majesty. Great are his works. Um, in verse 2, we see that he's worthy of, belie- of being delighted in. Verse 4 talks about him being gracious and merciful. These are all the things that when we take a step back and remember what the Lord has done for us, this is where our heart We want our heart to go. It says that we, all that God has done for his people. So I think as people, I don't know about you, but I know I tend to get caught up in the here and now. We just went through a pretty rough year together. I think we can all attest to that, that things were not um, really glorious this past year in terms of what our world looked like. And we get so caught up in that we completely sometimes forget to look back and see what God has done for us. And our psalmist here is saying his wondrous works are to be remembered. So I want to encourage myself with this. I want to encourage you with this to take a step back and just look and remember all that God has done for you. And that is going to lead us to that heart of praise, which we've been talking about so far. So now verse 5 through 8 we're looking at the actual physical provision. So this is where we're going to get into some specifics where the psalmist is actually going to talk about things that God like specifically has done. Now, Duane talked about this. He went through Psalm 78 last week and he talked about the journey of God's people and how their hearts were constantly doing this flip-flop where for a amount of time, they would be worshiping God. And then they would revert back and they would worship idols or they would worship anything but God. And it was this constant flip-flop of their hearts going back and forth. And I think if we evaluate ourselves, I think we're the same way. I think we're all there too. So I don't think we can point our fingers at the Israelites and be like, wow, they were bad. I think this is the condition of a human heart. But the key is, for them, the key for us is that God was faithful through it all. And as we flip-flop back and forth, God is faithful in our lives as well. So what did God do? What was he faithful for? Well, in verse 5, we see that he provided food for those who fear him. We know that when the Israelites were wandering in the desert, he had manna come down from heaven, so he provided food for them. It says the Lord is gracious and merciful. There are time and time again where God displays his mercy to his people and he forgives them and he brings them back and he provides for them. It says that he shows the people the power of his works in verse 6. I love that. I think of like all the miracles that were performed with Moses and all the amazing works of God that was shown. He gives them the inheritance of the nation. And then in 7, it says that his precepts are trustworthy. God can be trusted. It says they are established forever and ever to be performed with, up, with faithfulness and uprightness. God takes care of his people and God is faithful to his people. Let's go up a little bit and I want to look at that verse 5 where it says he remembers his covenant forever. So I want to talk, what was the covenant here? A covenant is a relationship in which God makes a promise towards man 
and then towards man, and then he requires a response from man. So what was the promise that God made to his people? Well, we know there's many covenants or many promises that God made his people back in the Old Testament. There was the Abrahamic covenant where he promises Abraham that, hey, your descendants are going to number the stars in the sky. Then we also know, and this, I don't, I've talked to Pastor Tom about this. I'm not positive, but I think that in this context, the covenant that's being talked about is talking about the exile, that God is going to deliver his people out of the hand of the Egyptians and move them and promise them to the promised land. We see in Exodus 3.8, God makes a promise. He says, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That is the promised land that God said, I promise that I am going to deliver my people out of slavery and into this promised land, flowing with milk and honey. I think that sounds pretty good. Sounds real good, actually. So these covenants, by the way, I want to make it clear, like, when we talk about promises, like my, my daughter, Pearl, she, she loves to talk about the pinky promise. Like, I hear her talking to Sam, I hear her talking to me, Daddy, pinky promise this. And that is really cute. But let me tell you, a covenant with God is not a pinky promise. This is an enduring, through it all, God is trustworthy. This is an enduring promise where he will keep his promise forever. And that's what the psalmist here is looking back at and saying, wow, God is faithful. He kept his promise forever. So then we hit verse 9. And I think this is kind of the epitome of everything above. It's, we can always look at the provision of God. He takes care of us in and out, day by day, and that is something to be praised for. That is something to be thankful for and worshiped for. Absolutely. But in verse 9, we see that word redemption. This is where it gets a little bit deeper here. So verse 9 says, He, talking about God, he sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The psalmist is finding immense joy in this redemption. God fulfilled his promises and protected his people thus far in history. Now remember, this is pre-Jesus, but it was fulfilled. He kept his promise. We know in the book of Joshua that God did deliver through Joshua his people into the promised land. So the psalmist can look back and say, wow, God made this promise that he will get them into this land of milk and honey and God did it. So he redeemed his people out of slavery and brought them into this promised land. That is, that is amazing. That is great news. And the psalmist is saying, wow, look back at what God has done. He redeemed us. And I can only imagine what that was like for them. But I want to make it clear that that pales in comparison to our redemption. The redemption that we have as followers of Christ is way surpassing of any kind of redemption that this psalmist could be talking about. The psalmist ends with holy and awesome is his name. That is pure, genuine worship here. But what can we say that for? Can we sit here and say holy and awesome is his name? Absolutely. We could talk about all that he has provided for us and that is worthy of his praise. But what about our redemption? Their redemption was freedom into this land. Our redemption is an eternal redemption. 
Of course, we're thankful for what God has done here on earth and all he does. But through the cross of Christ, we have a provision forever and ever. And that is everything. When we can look beyond the here and now and know that we have an eternity secured with Christ. I don't know if you've noticed it, but here at Springbrook Church, we preach the gospel every Sunday. And it's not because we don't think you know it or because we don't think you get it. It's because it's our everything. The gospel is our everything. And we need to be frequently reminded of what Jesus did for us. So what did Jesus do for us? What is our redemption? Our redemption isn't being delivered into an earthly promised land. Our redemption is the opportunity to have an eternity with Jesus. We are sinful people. I am a horribly sinful person. We all sin. The Bible says in Romans that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's a problem. That is a huge problem because we have a perfect and holy God and then we have us who though we, we try the Bible teaches us that our efforts to please God and our efforts to try to be holy are but filthy rags. They're worthless. So that's a problem. We have a perfect and holy God and we have us. And there's a disconnect there. We need redemption. So what is our redemption? Our redemption is the work of Jesus. God recognized this problem and God provided a solution. Dwayne took us to John 3.16 last week. We're going to look at it again. It says, For God so loved the world. He loved us because of God's love for us. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave us his only son. God says, I'm going to give you Jesus. And whoever believes in Jesus and what Jesus did for us shall not perish, but will have eternal life. That means that our redemption is a forever. So, Jesus came to earth. He lived the life that we can't live. He was perfect. We try to be perfect. We fail miserably on a daily basis. But Jesus, he came to earth and he lived that perfect life. And it was a miserable life. We can read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we can see all the horrible things that happened to Jesus and how he was mocked and how the Pharisees were always coming after him, trying to kill him. He did not have a glorious life, yet he lived that life without sin, the life that we can't do. And he earned the way to get to heaven. Jesus earned it. He did what we cannot do. But instead of taking that path, he was murdered. He was crucified. He hung on that cross for us. And all that wrath that we should get, the wrath that we deserve for our sin, God doesn't pour it out on us. He poured it out on his perfect son, Jesus. All of the wrath for all of our sins poured on his perfect son. We call that the great exchange. Our filthiness was exchanged for his perfection. That is our redemption. And if you remember what we talked about just briefly ago in John 3, 16, it says, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Do you believe that today? If we believe that, if that is our everything, if we trust that that is our redemption, then guess what? We will have eternal life and be with God. So I'm, I'm grateful that the psalmist was excited about their redemption, but it's got nothing on our redemption because we have Jesus. The psalmist ends in verse 9 with holy and awesome is his name. How much more does that mean for us? 
Holy and awesome is his name for what God accomplished through Jesus Christ. We can be so, so thankful for that. So that's the first nine verses. But now we're going to make a transition. Verse one through nine was all about what God has done for his people. And I like that. Nine verses about God. And then verse 10, that's the verse about us. A little bit about us. Verse 10 is our response. Our response to this beautiful, wonderful redemption that God has sent us through Christ. So let's look at what verse 10 has to say. Common passage. Many of you probably have this memorized. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All of those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Nine, nine verses on God, one verse about us. I like that. It's how it should be. But it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. What does that mean? What does it mean when it says the fear of the Lord? I'm sure you've all heard that statement before. Believe it or not, I believe that's a pretty commonly used word, word in the secular language that we talk about, fear of the Lord. But does anyone actually know what it means? Well, there's a couple places we could go. Um, I'll make a confession to you, and you can all judge me, but my, my family and myself, we love our country music. We spent two weeks ago, we were in Nashville for the week, and we, we experienced the whole country thing, and we loved it. And while we were at the Grand Old Opry at this one point in time, waiting for the singer to come out, you know, they kind of play music through the radio or the speakers there just to kind of, you know, keep you patient while you're, while you're waiting. And they played the Craig Morgan song that many of us all know. And in that song, he says, I'm a God-fearing, hard-working combine driver. So is that what it means to fear God? That we got to work hard and drive a tractor? I don't know. Well, there's also another song by a singer named Rodney, not Rodney Atkins. And it's a song about his gun and how he's preparing for when that guy's going to come date his daughter. And he's talking about, I'm holding that gun. And he says, it won't be long before I have to put the fear of God into some kid at the door. Is that what it means to fear the Lord? We got to have a gun? I don't know. It's a commonly used term. But what does it actually mean? We're going to go to see what the Bible has to say about this. I'm not up here and saying that this is the ultimate one-for-all definition, but my goal here today is to take you to some scriptures in the Bible, and hopefully we can start to get a good grasp and put in some of the pieces of the puzzle to actually what it means to fear the Lord. To fear the Lord means it has to do with how we view ourselves as a sinful human in relation to God, a perfect and holy God. So to fear the Lord is how we view us in relation to how we view God. So in the church, I'm not necessarily talking this church, but in churches as general, there tends to be two spectrums, maybe two extremes of where we land on this as to our relationship to God. One is the hellfire and brimstone, where he's the almighty ruler. He is holy, awesome is his name, and we better not cross him because, you know, he might just do the lightning bolt and zap us. That is one view of fearing the Lord, where he's holy, we're not, we have to fear his wrath. If you look at 2 Thessalonians 1.8, it says that he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of Lord Jesus. Vengeance, wrath, justice, that's one view. 
And I want to make it clear that that is God, by the way. Yes, God is a God of wrath. But then there's the other extreme or the other end of the spectrum that says, hey, God is our best buddy. He's overflowing with love. You ever seen the t-shirt, Jesus is my homeboy? Like that's that end of the spectrum where, you know, hey, he's just a God. He's so full of love and he just, just love, love, love. And I want to be clear. Yes, God is a God of love. If you look at John 15, 12, Jesus says, you are my friends. Jesus calls us friends. I've actually had this, this is a conversation I've had with a family member where there was a song that we used to sing. This was back at a different church when it talked about Jesus being a friend. And, you know, he was just like, oh, I just can't handle that song. Like, you know, you're my buddy, but Jesus isn't my buddy. And I'm like, well, I understand what you're saying. He's trying to say, you know, God is so much more than a buddy. He's my God. But the Bible does say, Jesus says to his disciples, you're my friends. So God does call us friends. So where can we land on this? Both are fully true. We have a God of justice and wrath. We got a God of unending love and just pure love for us. I think as we grasp the fear of the Lord, it's going to take us and bring that in to hopefully a good understanding of what our relationship truly is between us and God. So, first of all, I want to make it clear. If you are a believer in the finished work of Christ on the cross, what I talked about earlier, that saving work, that redemption of Jesus, what he did for us on the cross, I want to make it clear. If that is you, if you are secure in your faith and you have that eternal life that Jesus talks about, you believe in what he did for you, you can be 100% confident that he paid the price for your sins and he took the place in receiving God's wrath and you don't have to. That is holy and awesome is his name here. Like that is great news. If you believe in Christ, you do not have to endure the wrath of God. That is phenomenal news. If you're not a believer, then to be honest with you, the the fear of the Lord, it absolutely does mean fearing his wrath and punishment through the means of hell. Now that's not happy news. And I don't want to be the guy up here, you know, pouring this hellfire and brimstone on you. That's not my intent. But I want to make it clear, if you are alive and breathing in this room right now, there is time to embrace the saving grace of Jesus and never have to fear the wrath of God again. The Bible says in one part, it says, today is the day of salvation. This could be the day. Or if you're not sure about that, you're not sure where you stand with God. Am I saved? Am I I not? Like, come talk to me. Come talk to the person who came with you today. Come talk to a leader here at the church. And we'll share that gospel with you and we'll make sure that you understand that and you'll never fear the wrath of God again. You'll have eternity because of Christ, not because of your works, because of Christ's work, you will have an eternity in heaven with Christ. So that is again, good news. So if the fear of God's wrath is off the table, what does it mean? What does fear mean? So we're not fearing his wrath, but the psalmist says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So what does that mean? Let's go ahead and let's turn to Romans 11. This is going to help us get a grasp. We're going to look at two passages. We're going to pull out four key points of what it means to fear the Lord. So Romans 11. Now we got to talk a little bit of background here as to what's going on because we're totally, we're we're shifting here. We're going from Old Testament. Now we're talking New Testament. This is post-Jesus, after what Jesus accomplished at the cross. This is written by the Apostle Paul. 
And what Paul's talking about here, he's talking about this idea of grafting. Now, I don't know if any of you are farmers here or if any of you have grafted before. I can say I personally have tried this grafting thing. I failed miserably. I don't think a single plant grew that I tried grafting, but that's okay. I still understand how it works and hopefully I can explain that to you. So what grafting is, let's say you have two trees. Let's say you got a crab apple, produces little tiny apples, and you got like a, a wolf river. They produce those really big ones. You can cut the branch off of this tree and splice it into this tree and it will grow and it will produce fruit. So if I take my crab apple branch and put it on my wolf river tree, it's gonna produce all kinds of wolf river apples. And then that one branch that I grafted on from the crab apple tree, it's gonna still produce crab apples. It's kind of cool. You can have, I've heard people call about like the Franken tree, or you can have this really goofy looking tree that produces all different color kinds of apples because all these different branches have been grafted in. So that's what grafting is. And like I said, I tried this. We got some land out just south of town and I tried grafting some trees. Not a single one of them blossomed this year. So if you, if you're, if you know how to do it, please come talk to me and teach me because I failed miserably. So that's what grafting is. Taking from one and grafting it into another. And, the th- and I think the key that we need to understand here in the context of the scripture is that crab apple that we just grafted in, it's going to be supplied by the roots and the nourishment is going to come from that wolf river, even though it is still a crab apple branch. I think that's the key here. So we're going to talk about this now. You're like, what in the world does this have to do with the fear of the Lord? Well, it does, I promise you. Paul actually uses this idea of grafting and he brings it into the context of the gospel in the context of the Jews, the Israelites, and the Gentiles. So we know through Bible history that God had his chosen race, his chosen people, and they were the Israelites. But we know that they screwed up, like we all do, and they were disobedient. And because of that, God decides, well, I'm going to bring into my fold, I'm going to offer redemption, offer salvation to this other group of people called the Gentiles. And so we're going to see here how that works. So Romans 11, verse 17, it says, But if some of the branches were broken off, that's talking about the Israelite nation, the Jews. They were broken off from the tree. And then he says, And you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others. Now he's saying, so the Jew, they were cut off, and the Gentile people, they, the originally non-chosen people, they were grafted in. They were brought in now. It says, and they now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. So grafted in, not natural, but grafted in, and they are now just embracing and living off of that nourishing root. He says, do not be arrogant towards the branches. He's like, hey, just because you're grafted in, don't become a jerk and don't get conceited and be arrogant towards these branches. He says, if you are, remember, that is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. He's saying the root, which we know is God, it supports. That's where we get the support from. It's not from the branches. And in 19, it says, Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you, this is our key here, but you, talking to the Gentiles, stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Do not become proud, but fear. This is a contrast here. Do not become proud, but fear. So I think if we want to grasp 
one concept or one proponent of fearing the Lord, I think we can say based upon this scripture that not being prideful and not being proud and not being arrogant, that is one way that we can fear the Lord. And we can make that a lot more simple and we can just say the opposite of pride we know is humility. So we can say that having a humble heart, not being proud, that is one proponent of fearing the Lord. So let's keep that in the back of our minds because we're going we're gonna to lump all this together. So based upon this scripture, to fear the Lord, we need to be humble. We need to acknowledge our place before God. God did the work, not us. All right, now let's turn to Hebrews 12. We're going to look at Hebrews 12, verse 28. This is an encouraging passage. A passage is titled, The Kingdom That Cannot Be Shaken. And in verse 28, the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Let us be grateful and let us offer to God worship with reverence and awe. We need to have a humble heart. We need to acknowledge that we're sinful and God is holy. That's the first step of fearing the Lord. We need to be then grateful for who he is and what he did for us. So to have a grateful heart and then we worship him with reverence and awe. So what is, what is reverence and awe? I looked up the definition of reverence and reverence is a deep, deep respect. So think of a person that you respect. We all have someone in our lives that we just look at them and be like, man, I really respect them. Our God is worthy of the absolute deepest respect. It says we need to worship him with reverence. And then it also says and with awe. Well, we all use the word awesome a lot. I'm sure some of you today have even used the word, oh, that's awesome. But what does it mean to be something to be truly awesome or to be in awe of something? It's like when you just, you're speechless. Like your mouth drops and you're just, there's no words to explain this. Like that is absolute awe, sheer amazement of something. So based upon these two scriptures, I think we can see fear the Lord as we need to be humble. We need to be grateful. We need to view God with absolute reverence and deep respect. And we need to be in awe, utter amazement of who he is. So I could try to explain that and, you know, dig down more and, you know, try to unpack that even more, but I don't need to because there is a passage in scripture, a story that Jesus tells where we see this played out almost word for word exactly. And so many of you know this story and it is the story of Jesus calming the storm. There are three different accounts of this story. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell of this story because it is such a great story. I mean, if you guys read the the Jesus Storybook Bible or any of the, the kids' Bible stories, this one's always in there. Jesus calming the storm. But it's not just a kid's story. There's so much in here that we can take. So I want to look at the story. And normally we always look at Jesus because he is our everything. He's our one that we have reverence and awe before. But for our sake today, I want to look at the disciples a little bit. We're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to talk about what he did. But we want to look at the response of the disciples. Because I think if we look at their response, 
we're going to get a really clear definition of what it means to fear the Lord. But let's start up at verse 35. So we are in Mark, Mark 4, verse 35, Jesus calming the storm. It says, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with them. So they're in the boat. There's other boats. They're going to the other side of the lake. And in 37, we see a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. I don't know if any of you are fishermen or sailors or like to be in a boat, but I think we all know that if you're in the boat and water's coming in the boat, that's a problem. The water's supposed to stay outside the boat and you are in the boat and it's supposed to be dry. So I think any of us in that situation, we'd be kind of concerned. It's so windy, huge storm, waves are crashing in and the boat's filling with water. That's a problem. I love this, verse 38. But he, he's talking about Jesus here, but Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. I love it. Jesus is sleeping. He's not worried. And this is probably my interpretation, but this idea of asleep on the cushion, I picture this like, Jesus is like having a good sleep here. He's not just like dozing off. Like he's, not, he's comfortable. He's on a cushion. And he's just sleeping. Jesus is asleep. He's at peace. But he's not at peace much longer because we see, and they woke him. So the disciples, they're panicking, boats filling with water. Jesus is having a nice sleep here. They woke him up. And they said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They're, they're freaking out. We're going down. Jesus is sleeping. They're like, we got to wake him up. And they're like, Jesus, don't you care? Come on, Jesus. Like, don't you care? And it says in 39, and he awoke. So Jesus has to get up. And it says, he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, peace, be still. Jesus gets up. Clearly we know that he wasn't super happy about this because later on we're going to see that he asked the disciples, like, hey, don't you trust me? But he gets up and what does he do? It doesn't say he does this big, amazing, powerful, raise his hand. No, it says that he rebukes the storm and he says three words, peace, be still. That is incredible. And what happens? It says the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Peace, be still, calm. That's incredible. And in 40, Jesus says to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? He's like, come on guys, don't you know who I am? You have no faith. And 41, here's our response. I think, it's my interpretation, but I think this gets us into what it means to fear the Lord. It says, they were filled with great fear and they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? We know in Matthew's account, it says that the disciples were marveling. They're speechless. They're absolutely speechless. They thought that they were going belly up in the water. They were convinced. It's done. So they wake up Jesus. Crazy storm. Jesus says three words. It's calm. They're like speechless. And it says that they were filled with fear. 
I don't think that fear is talking like their fear of God's wrath that he's going to be mad at them and kick them out of the boat and they go drown. I don't think that's the fear we're talking about here. I think this is the reverence and awe kind of fear. Remember we talked about fear being four things. Humility. Well, let's see. Were they humble? They said, who is this then? In other words, they're comparing themselves to God. Who is this? Like, they know who they are, but who is this? Who is this God? That's humility. It says they're humble. Do you think they were grateful? I think that one's pretty easy to all say. Yeah, they were grateful because they thought they were going to die, and now they are alive. It says, who is this then that even the winds and the seas obey him? That's reverence and awe. They are ultimately respecting him. They're like, this guy just calmed the sea. He just spoke to the wind and he spoke to the waves and done. It was calm. How about awe? I think that defines what awe is. They were completely in awe. They can't even believe it. I mean, they're, they're literally asking themselves, who is this guy? Who is this guy? I love that. Have you ever looked at what Jesus has done and just say, who is this? He is so amazing. He is so incredible. Look what he has done. That is having a heart of reverence and awe. Fearing God as a believer in Christ, it's not a cowering fear. We're not cowering, hiding, afraid that God's going to kick us out of the boat. It is a viewing God with humbleness, seeing who he is and knowing who we are, acknowledging our place before him, acknowledging that we're a sinner, but Jesus took the place and covered our sins through the cross. And that leads us to have a deep, deep respect and be in absolute awe of him. So we have one more thing to look at. This is in closing, by the way. That's a good thing for all of you. Why? Why? Why do we fear the Lord? Hopefully we have a little bit better grasp of what it means. And by all means, I, I guarantee you there's other passages that would add to that as to what it means to fear the Lord. This is probably just, you know, scratching the surface of what it means. But we still need to know why. Well, verse 10 in Psalm tells us why. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is the foundation of wisdom. This is the foundation of understanding. It says all those who practice it, so all of those who fear the Lord, all those who can look at God in the way that we just defined, it says they're going to have a good understanding. What that means is it means that life is going to make a little more sense. When we view God in his proper place, we see us, we see him, we're going to have a better understanding. It doesn't mean we're going to have everything figured out, but it means that life is going to make a little bit more sense. It's going to help us understand who God is. It's going to help us on that spectrum that we talked about at the beginning. Yes, he's a God of wrath and justice. He's also a God of love and personal friendship. And I think fear of the Lord helps us bring those in and allows us to put God into his proper place and put him into the proper perspective and view him through both lenses. And then Psalm 111.10 ends with the words, his praise endures forever. It takes us back to the beginning of the psalm. It gives us the reasons as to why we praise him. He is so worthy of our praise. It says, 
His praise endures forever. I want to encourage you to think and to look at your life and see all of the things that you have to praise him for. And maybe you're in a really crummy spot in life right now, and I know a lot of us are, and that's okay. But if you can't think of anything, look at the cross of Christ. The cross, what he accomplished for you, that is the ultimate praise. No matter what, we have that to praise God for. So a couple questions. Who is God to you? Is he a God full of wrath and fury? Is he your homeboy? Who is he? What does fearing God mean to you? Is he in his proper place in your heart? Are you humbly worshiping him, being grateful for all that he has done, and doing so with a heart of reverence in complete awe? And if so, I hope that leads you to worship and to praise him like we see here in this psalm. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for who you are. You are a God worthy of our praise. You redeemed us through the work of Jesus on the cross. God, help us to be in awe of that. Help us to truly have hearts where we're speechless. Our jaws just drop when we look at what you accomplished. And then help us look onto all the ways that you provide for us and all the things that you do in our lives on a daily basis to take care of us. Help us to be grateful. Help us to just want to be humble for you and to be in adoration of you and just to marvel at your works. Help us to fear you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen.